Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Humanoid robots who cater to our needs, genomic medicine that targets our ailments, money that looks entirely different than the money we have today. Those are just a few of the looks into the future that Alec Ross gives us in his new book, The Industries of the Future. The former State Department advisor also explores the markets of the future for products and services. So what what do you see as future industries? Do you work in a business that is rapidly changing? We'd like to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Alec Ross is distinguished visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University and author of The Industries of the Future. He joins us today from the studios of WYPR in Baltimore, where he lives. Alec, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, in the process of writing this book and in some of your own life experiences, what, what did you learn about the future by analyzing the past? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked about that. I was actually a, a medieval history major going through college. So as much as I'm associated with things like technology and science now, I've come to understand the technology and the science of the future in part by by looking backwards. You know, it's interesting. The last 20 or 30 years of globalization and innovation have made the world a better place. It's lifted nearly a billion people up and out of poverty around the world. Uh, It's created goods and services that would have been unimaginable decades ago. But if you're working class from, you know, uh, in high-cost East Coast center like Connecticut or West Virginia where I grew up, the disruption and the change hasn't been all for the good. And, you know, I grew up as a public school kid in West Virginia working shoulder to shoulder oftentimes with, with men and women who had really struggled over the last several decades. And so I really think that the reason why I wrote this book, The Industries of the Future, was seeing not just the promise but also the peril that comes with all of this globalization and innovation. Mm. You you write about uh, you're growing up in Charleston, West Virginia, a place that relied on coal, and then coal goes away, and chemicals come in, and uh, chemicals have some of their issues. And, and those are two very important examples, really, Alec, of of things that make people's lives better in that they give them jobs, but yet people who mine coal for a living don't tend to live too long, and people who have chemicals in their backyards tend to have their rivers polluted. Th- this is all the perils up close, just even in your own backyard. No, this is absolutely true. You know, we all welcomed the jobs that, you know, our working class could get in ports, factories, mines, and mills over a period of decades. But the very practical matter of that is that there are really nasty secondary outcomes of that, whether it's pollution, whether it's being exposed to toxic toxic materials that, you know, will increase the likelihood of cancer. Uh, Some of this has actually been solved for us. It's been solved for us in part by globalization, where those jobs in ports, factories, mines, and mills have moved to lower-cost centers, you know, in India, in Mexico, and elsewhere. 
And interesting, interestingly, some of the jobs that have remained have been automated. So the work that was done by coal miners decades ago is now being done by machines. Very sophisticated manufacturing work requires fewer humans now. And so what we're really seeing here, John, is America's transition from an industrial economy into an increasingly technology-rich, knowledge-based economy. And it's good for some folks, and it's really tricky for others. And I think another big question that that underlies a lot of what's in your book, and we're going to get to some specifics in a moment, is this question of whether the benefits of globalization, something that, that clearly has transformed lives around the world, it's put more technology into more people's hands, it's given more people uh, a better chance at uh, a real life where they can make, make a dollar no matter where they live, we also see the benefits of globalization accruing to the, the folks at the very, very top more than ever. These massive gaps in equality that are such a feature of our presidential debate right now, those really are some of the things that are happening not only in America and around the world. Is that one of the outcomes of globalization that you have to grapple with here? It is. You know, we're, we're in an interesting position that, as far as I can tell, is unique in human history, where what we're doing is we are creating what in academic terms is called more bounty but also more spread. So we're creating we are creating more wealth than we ever have before and we are creating things like longer lives because of advances in the life sciences. That's the bounty, but it has more spread. So the beneficiaries of all of this bounty is increasingly concentrated in in a smaller number of hands. I think for example about photography. You know, all of us today are walking around with 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 phones in our pockets that can take pictures. Well, that wasn't the case 10 or 15 years ago. So our ability to all take photographs and do it all day every day, that's bounty. We all now have a capability that we didn't once have. But what's interesting is that the economic benefit of that is flowing to relatively few people. In the same week that Facebook bought Instagram, home to tens of billions of those photographs, Eastman Kodak went bankrupt. Now, Eastman Kodak at its peak had 130,000 employees. Instagram, when it was bought, had 16. So this is the contradiction. We're all, you know, happier because we can all walk around and take as many photographs as we want. But the actual economic benefit of that bounty flows to a relatively small number of hands. And if you're one of the 130,000 people who lived it, who worked at Eastman Kodak, well, then you probably don't welcome this at all. We're talking with Alec Ross, whose new book is The Industries of the Future. He joins us from Baltimore, where he's a visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University. You can join us at 860-275-7266 as we talk about the changing economy, the industries of the future. Tell us a bit about why you got into writing this book in the first place. You you were the senior advisor for innovation in the State Department, uh, serving under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and you got a chance to see these sorts of innovations around the world. What did you learn there that you wanted to turn into a book? Yeah, so, you know, I traveled, apparently, I traveled the equivalent of 25 circumferences of the globe. You traveled to dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. And it gave me a little peek at what's next. And what I came to understand is that there are elites, you know, sort of let's call them the the Davos crowd, the, you know, the academic crowd, the business elites. And they understand the forces that are shaping our future. And what I came to believe was that an understanding of the forces shaping our future 
was too narrowly understood. It was only understood by elites. It was only understood by the people who were really benefiting from it. And so the reason why I wrote The Industries of the Future, honestly, it comes from more from my background as a public school kid in West Virginia than it did from my time at the State Department. I thought it was more and more important, especially for people beginning their careers and for parents who are very concerned about what skills their kids are going to need in tomorrow's world. I wrote the book to try to light a little path. You know, I wrote the book to try to say, hey, you know, if the 20 years from 1995 to 2015 were all about digitization and the rise of the internet and all the changes that would flow from that, this is what this is 2016 to 2026. This is what's coming next. And so having been, you know, really blessed with the opportunity to travel all over the world and come to some conclusions about what the next forces are that are shaping the world. My real goal was not to then spend my time talking about it with the world's super elites, but to try to share that information as broadly as possible. Again, especially for people at the beginning of their careers and for parents trying to steward their kids' educations. So if you were imagining the world of 2016, say back in 1940 or 1950, whether you were a science fiction writer or one of those uh, industrial elites, you might have been thinking of a world filled with robots. And you're writing that, that maybe the robots are coming in the next couple of years. That's right. You know, I think the, I think the robots of the cartoons and movies of the 1970s are going to be the reality of the 2020s. And it's really coming for two reasons. Number one is this thing called mapping belief space. So things that were very complex to model out mathematically and algorithmically for robots, like grasping. Grasping might seem like a relatively straightforward task, but it's actually quite complex. The breakthroughs in mathematics have enabled us in just the last two or three years here to take robots from being dominantly two-dimensional to three-dimensional beings. And then the second big development here is the combination of artificial intelligence and cloud robotics. So, John, if if C-3PO, you know, our favorite robot from the 1970s, walked into your studio right now and interrupted us, he might say, oh, excuse me, oh, my, I'm sorry to have interrupted you, and, you know, sort of toggle on out of the studio. What would be happening as practical matter is the amount of hardware and software it would take to whir in that gold-gleaming body, it would be hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to have the cognitive ability, the mo- the, the ability to move and speak and, and do all of those actions that I just described. The C-3PO of the 2020s, there will be a cloud-connected device powered by the artificial intelligence in the cloud. And so if he interrupted you in the studio, John, he would ping the cloud, and the cloud would tell him, excuse yourself, excuse yourself in English, and turn yourself around and walk out of there. So what that means is that we don't have to build million-dollar robots. Robots can actually be relatively dumb devices so long as they are cloud-connected, and, it, and this means that for labor, we can increasing, robotic labor can increasingly do things that are not just manual and routine, but increasingly do work that is cognitive and non-routine. But why is it important that he looks like C-3PO, right, that we develop a robot in the, in the course of the next couple of decades that is able to interact with me and, and look kind of human-y, even if he's getting all of his data about how to talk to me from the cloud? Well, you know, we'll see if they look human-y, you know, like one of the, again, like one of those robots for the movies or not. 
what I what I do see, what I have seen, particularly in the labs in East Asia where this stuff is mainstreaming, is that the humanoid robots are actually being developed to look eerily human. There are things like like uh, ferrofluids, electroactive polymers, other demands, other demand uh, developments in material sciences that are enabling these robots to look more and more human. And I think part of it is is so that they can coexist with us, at least in the Eastern ideal of this. You know, me sitting here in Baltimore, Maryland, I sort of writhe at the idea of this. But this is in part because we have cultural baggage as Westerners that is very different than that coming from where most of these robots are being developed. In countries like Japan, where they have a belief in Shinto, uh, that's the religion of 80% of the people in Japan, they believe that all objects can have souls. And so they coexist with robots to a degree to which we in a Western society would find really uncomfortable, uh, where, where in our mythology from Icarus with his waxed wings to Frankenstein, we're taught to really fear bringing to life that which, which perhaps isn't really human. Mm. And so you write about caregiving robots that, that could indeed, maybe in certain cultures or maybe in, in adaptation mode over years in, in our Western culture, are able to, to take care of us in a way that um, we've relied on humans to in the past. And one, it's one of the freakiest things I saw in the years of research uh, for the industries of the future. In Japan, which has the world's longest living citizens, men and women live on average into their uh, 80s in Japan and where they are growing older. Uh, there aren't enough grandchildren to take care of the grandparents. And so Toyota and Honda, yes, the car companies, have developed robots, uh, the purpose of which is to take care of elderly patients from lifting them out of the bathtub to playing the violin to entertain them. I find it almost ghoulish. But it's mainstreaming there. And so I don't know that it'll necessarily come to the U.S., but it is spreading through Asia. And what I do imagine will happen is if the economics of robotic labor of different forms uh, becomes more cost effective than human labor, you know, in a world driven by shareholder value, by profit and loss, I imagine we're going to see some jobs replaced by computers and robots that hard to imagine doing it today. But, you know, Stephen, uh, one of our, our listeners, gives us a Facebook comment that says health care will still be a need. People need to take care of people. And, of course, that will always be, be true. I, what I'm reading into what Stephen's saying, perhaps maybe a little bit too much, is that part of the relationship we might have with, with robots is, is a sort of trust. You, you talk about Toyota building robots that will help people in and out of the bathtub. Well, I don't know. Toyota didn't do such a good job a couple of years ago of making airbags that worked or, or you know, cars that didn't catch on fire. Uh, we, we have any number of problems with uh, Internet uh, searches, and we have Google building a car that we just trust in a certain point will drive us wherever we have to go without possibly crashing. Isn't, isn't a big part of the future and the industries of the future having the trust in these technologies to take over things that we usually only let humans do? So the short answer of that is yes, but a lot of this happens without our knowing it. So let's go back. Since Stephen brought up healthcare, let's talk about that. Uh, the most expensive part of a surgery is the anesthesia. 
And so, you know, it's it has typically been the case that in every surgery, there is an anesthesiologist in the operating room. Uh, in the last couple years, there have been more than one million uh, robotic surgeries in the United States, in the U.S., where the anesthesia is done robotically. And the anesthesiologist, instead of standing, instead of one anesthesiologist being in every operating room, there might be one anesthesiologist looking at five different screens and monitoring five different surgeries taking place simultaneously. So not eliminating the anesthesiologist entirely, but taking the number per sur- per surgery from, you know, five to one in this case. Um, not per surgery, but rather taking the total number of, of anesthesiologists in, say, five surgeries from five to one. And I don't think most people know this. So a lot of the replacement of humans by robots or by machines is being done without our knowing it. The role of the anesthesiologist has changed, and I, I, I bet you didn't know that, John. I, I, I honestly didn't know that, and it's one of the things that you can learn from Alec Ross's new book. It's called The Industries of the Future. Uh, if you want to join us, 860-275-7266. We're going to come back from a break. We'll continue this conversation. Later this hour, we'll be joined by the president and CEO of Jackson Laboratories, Dr. Edison Liu. You can continue this conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking with Alec Ross. He's a distinguished visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's the author of a new book called The Industries of the Future. Join our conversation at 860-275-7266. We talked about robots in our daily lives, whether or not they can take care of us or drive us from place to place. Of course, one of the things we've been monitoring closely over the course of these last two wars, Alec, is is robotic warfare. Are, are other countries catching up to our use of drones in warfare? Well, they aren't at this point because, for the simple reason that it costs an enormous amount of money to develop this technology. And the expertise for developing the technologies tends to be in the U.S., and we restrict its export. There are examples of drones that have been developed and by, you know, even non-state-based actors, relatively unsophisticated like Hezbollah and others, but they aren't launching Hellfire missiles. So the use of drones is spreading, but, you know, not the kind of drones that necessarily weaponize the air in a new way. Now, having said that, anything that we create, we can't imagine it's only going to it's own, that capability is going to exist exclusively for the U.S. So I don't see many other nations getting the capability to use drones as we have in the next three or four years, but thereafter it wouldn't surprise me if they did. That may not be the way that people wage war against the United States in the future, but certainly cyber terrorism, cyber crime is something that you outline in the book and something that is very, very real and here and something that Uh, everything from the State Department to the Department of Defense, they're worrying quite a bit about. How big a role do you think cybercrime and cyberterrorism plays in the the problems of the future that we're going to have to contend with? Yeah, now having just said that drones are a while off, let me tell you, cyber weapons are here right now. I think that the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material, the difference being that creating a nuclear arm requires access to the scarcest of scarce scientific talent and transuranium elements, 
whereas creating powerful cyber weapons has a much lower barrier to entry. When I was at the State Department, we declassified a national intelligence estimate that put the total loss of intellectual property through cyber attacks from America on an annual basis at $300 billion. So basically, the total amount of exports to Asia every year is stolen by the Chinese in a year. And if that trade were legitimate, it would mean about 2 million more jobs in the U.S., so I don't I can't imagine a much bigger impact of cyber conflict than that. Now to now to this point we haven't seen subways go dark, we haven't seen airplanes fall from the sky or anything like that. And the reason for that is that the the places that do have the capability to launch cyber attacks that would produce those kinds of outcomes have no incentive uh to wage that wage that kind of physical terror. But it could happen in the future. And right now, I think the economic impact of cyber attacks against the United States could not be more keenly felt. Two million jobs. But so are we spending the money in the right places to combat this? I mean, it seems as though we want to continually build weapons systems that will uh, counteract other weapons systems, try to kill people in new and innovative ways. Are we spending the requisite money, Alec, to protect ourselves from these cyber attacks that you say could cost billions or trillions of dollars? So here's the tricky part. You know, at the end of the day, in the world of physical conflict, you know, guns and missiles, it's the job of government to provide our defenses. But in the case of industry, where all of this intellectual property is being stolen from, it's more of a question. Well, who's in charge of protecting these networks? Is it the government or is it industry? You know, government has proven nearly as vulnerable um, as anybody in anything. I mean, when I was in government, the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, was hacked from the Chinese. And so the Chinese now have access to my clearance information, which let me tell you, they know just about everything about me now. And so like, I don't know that we want to necessarily entrust the U.S. government with protecting our corporate networks. And so this is where things get tricky. The role of defense uh, in physical conflict is different than the role than the role of defense in cyber conflict. And and so it's really I think the onus right now is on corporations to increasingly focus on their cyber defenses because I don't think that they can count on the U.S. government to protect them. But look, I mean, we just saw the standoff. I mean, it happened too recently to have gotten into your book, the standoff between Apple and the government over whether or not to unlock this iPhone that was said to have information about shooters in the San Bernardino attacks. There's an instance where a company has developed a type of security solution that the biggest, baddest folks in the world can't seem to crack into uh, unless they try really, really hard or, or essentially ask them to to do something for them. I mean, it seems as though in cases like that, Apple and other huge multinational companies like that may be at odds with the uh, Defense Department, for instance, that may be trying to protect us now and in the future. So in this case, uh, first of all, you're making my point for me in that, you know, Apple in this case clearly has a set of technical capabilities that the FBI didn't. Now, I do think it's important to note that the military, uh, the CIA, the NSA and others actually didn't support 
uh, the request of the FBI. This is the case of the FBI really acting on its own, you know, trying to get Apple to hack itself. But this is really my point. I think the FBI showed a galling lack of sophistication in being able to get into that iPhone. They said it was impossible to get in without Apple's help. And then, oops, lo and behold, they could get in with some help from the outside. This goes to my point about why corporations are better off protecting themselves than having government do it for them. But here's a, here's a problem with that, John, is we're talking about Apple, which has, you know, remarkable technological capabilities. What if you're a small business owner in Hartford? You're not Apple. What if you're a medium-sized business that does have some IP that some hackers might want access to? But you're not Google. You don't have the capabilities of a Fortune 500 company. A company. And so this is one of the tricky parts, too. When I say corporate America, there's a huge amount of diversity in corporate America. So when I think about small, medium-sized enterprises in, in Connecticut, they don't have the ability to protect themselves like the, like the country's biggest businesses. This is why the cyber domain is such a mess. Uh, b- before we have to take a break, though, I should ask you, you talk about millions and billions of dollars going to cyber terrorism or cy- cyber warfare. One of the things that we've been trying to do to combat that is making things like our, our credit cards safer. Money has certainly been changing. But do you see a near future where even the idea of the physical credit card as the way we, we shuffle money around is is going to be a thing of the past? Well, I'll tell you, I actually think that the more our currencies digitize, whether it involves plastic or not, actually makes us more secure and not less secure. Uh, Most of the technology being developed out of places like Silicon Valley right now that are focused on payments tend to involve the very powerful encryption that so drove the FBI nuts with Apple. And so I actually think that the evolution in finance and payments uh, is going to make us more safe as opposed to less safe. Do you think that the economy changes, though, when we have less physical money? Same thing as before. We have big corporations and then small mom and pops. A lot of mom and pops, people on on the streets really are dealing in a cash economy. As that changes, does it change, I don't know, our, our entire culture? Well, I think that there are advances from companies like Square and Stripe, uh, which I describe in my book, where you know even if you're a mom and pop store with a cash register, you should be able to get around the middlemen and begin begin to be able to accept digital payments, uh, you know, including credit cards, without the fees that existed just five or six years ago because, again, of some of the innovation coming out of Silicon Valley. I do think the move towards an increasingly cash-free economy is inevitable. Alec Ross is Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. He joins us from WYPR today. His book is The Industries of the Future. When we come back, we'll be talking more about some of these industries and taking your phone calls. Right now, we'll take you to some of my friends to tell you why you should support public radio in Connecticut. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, America's elderly population is growing fast. So is the number of older adults with mental and behavioral health needs. On the next episode of Where We Live, we will take a closer look at what those needs are, what's being done to address them. We'll also find out what some new research says about the relationship between stress and pre-Alzheimer's conditions in seniors. 
That's our conversation tomorrow. Hope you can join us. Today we're talking with Alec Ross about the industries of the future. That's the name of his new book. He joins us from Baltimore today. We were talking about robots as caregivers earlier. Uh, Jenny uh, emails us and says, having been very involved with caring for my aging and increasingly disabled mother, I see robots enabling seniors to stay in their homes longer to assist with uh, lifting, bathing, monitoring, and entertaining. But human touch and participation is imperative. You can continue this conversation. Go to uh, our Facebook page or on Twitter at where we live. Um, Alec Ross, we're going to turn to medicine in just a moment, but I want to quickly get a phone call. Mark's in Litchfield. Hi, Mark. Go ahead. Yes. Hi. Uh, I was wondering, in past shows, you've discussed uh, food and other natural resources as being destabilizing in the future as population grows or we, we outstrip our capacities. And I'm wondering if the automation or the um, use of robotics in your two examples in which many were replaced by one could also have a destabilizing effect in the future for populations as jobs sort of become a scarcity. Thanks for the question, Mark. Uh, Alec, what do you say? I actually have a very optimistic view of the future of agriculture and farming as we move from a world of 7.2 billion to 9 billion people. And the reason for that comes from a section of the book that we haven't really discussed yet, which is data analytics. In the same way in which the Green Revolution after World War II allowed us to produce an, a, a significantly larger amount of food and healthier food, increasing life expectancies around the globe by nearly 10 years. I believe that the application of, of big data tools to agriculture will enable us to produce far more food um, and far healthier food. And if you think about economies where hunger persists, in India, for example, which is still home to one-third one of the world's people who live in severe poverty, the farming done there is remarkably unsophisticated. But with new tools, new technologies being brought there, it can, it can help uh, bring abundance where once there was scarcity. So, ac so actually, in the case of agriculture and food, I think that these technological changes fueled by data analytics are going to make the world less hungry. I, I wonder, though, if, if the rapid rise of abundance is something that we might worry about. I, when I was on Science Friday last week, one of the things we touched on is a new uh, World Health Organization report that shows that now more of the world is obese than underfed. This is the first time this has ever happened, and it points to something that happens rapidly when you have so much more abundance than you used to have. That's exactly right. You know, look, I'm from West Virginia, which has an enormous problem with obesity, and that is a product in large part of the Green Revolution where once in my native West Virginia, people were very hungry and where, you know, food was something you, if you were lucky, you got to eat three days, three times a day. Now, in, a, in an environment of abundance, people who had been socialized for hundreds of years that when you have food available to it, you eat until you're full it now has a remarkably high level of obesity, you know, the worst in the country. And so, you know, how we manage these developments in technology and science as the world grows more technologically and scientifically sophisticated, our human values and our humanity grow ever more important. Alec Ross, stand by for a second. I want to bring into the conversation Dr. Edison Liu, who's president and CEO of the Jackson Laboratory. We've spoken with Dr. Liu in the past about the work that they're doing at Jackson Labs. And as we talk about the industries of the future, genomic medicine is certainly one of them. Uh, first of all, Dr. Liu, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you very much. Uh, when you look ahead at the future of medicine, maybe you can just, first of all, briefly give us a sense of how fast you think it's moving, from from maybe the start of your career to what you've developed with Jackson Labs to what we see in the 10 or 20 years out that Alec Ross is looking at. Oh, it's a breakneck speed. It's absolutely phenomenal. In uh, Just in the last 10 years, I think we've uh, accelerated our discovery in a manner that, that I haven't seen in my academic lifetime. Um, one of the challenges I think Alec um, really touched upon is um, the speed of discovery may exceed our capacity to understand and to manage it. That this is becoming a greater, greater problem. Mm. Tell us more about that. What do you mean? Well, um, many of our technologies are implementable now, um, and yet the ramifications of what they can do um, um, have uh, have not really caught on in terms of, of the, the legal, um, the ethical framework of how we can implement them. Um, for example, our ability to edit genes is uh, phenomenal at this point, which means that uh, we can we can develop uh, literally life-saving uh, cures for many diseases, and yet how we manage these um, uh, to what extent can we actually Im- implement these in human populations is yet to be even uh, discussed in any great degree. You recently led a research team and found a molecular fingerprint to uh, some extremely deadly cancers for women. C- can you talk about findings like these, findings that obviously are of a lot of interest to people who see cancer still as one of the greatest scourges out there? Mm-hmm. Cancer is a perfect example of uh, of, of the implication of the technologies. It's, it's a very, very complex disease that, um, that is genetic in nature because it involves the genes in the cells that become cancers. And it's not just one gene. It's actually hundreds to thousands of gene mutations that occur that generate and then sustain a cancer to, that unfortunately will kill patients. How you decipher all these changes requires the analytics that has been mentioned in the um, in the previous speaker's um, uh, comments. And um, what we've been doing is using uh, genome-based technologies in, un, in to, first of all, discover all the mutations that are there, using the analytics to prioritize as to which are important or not, using computational tools to look at how they're related to each other, and then using very advanced cell and um, uh, and mod- cell and organismal model systems to dissect out the meaning of all these changes. Once we have that, um, then we can start thinking about how to intervene with the therapeutics that we have. The uh, observation that we have made could never have been made without the whole genome sequencing and the analytics that are available now that was not present even 12 years ago. But, but it sounds like what you're saying is we have used all of these tools and technologies that weren't available 10 or 15 years ago, and we've been, been able to get that far, but we still have some limitations on how we're able to distribute uh, these new medications, how we'd be able to develop them, how we'd be able to really have a, a major impact on people. What are those limitations right now, Doctor? Well, uh, much of this is, is in two phases. Number one, it's... Um, it's actually the translation from the basic science into clinical impact. The limiting factor right now is the clinical verification, that is, the clinical trials. It is so costly and takes so long to get to that point. Um, many of the discoveries are just kind of waiting in the wings. Uh, uh, 
Now, in addition to that, we have a crisis in healthcare finance. So even if we develop the, the, the potential cures, these cures are so expensive that the system itself is buckling under the cost considerations of distributing these cures. Mm. I, uh, Alec Ross, could you pick up on that? So he, he sees the, the limitations of the cost of this. Of course, in this, in this new world that you write about, it seems as though th- there should be the ability to make enough money to go around, to be able to pay for these technologies of, of the future that Dr. Liu is working on. What, what do you say? Well, I'm in violent agreement with everything that Dr. Liu said, and, and the work that he, is, that he and his colleagues are doing is spectacular and spectacularly important. Now, to, to focus on the financial question for a moment, I think that the world's last trillion-dollar industry was created out of computer code. The world's next trillion-dollar industry is going to be created out of genetic code. It's the commercialization of the kind of work that Dr. Liu described. Now, there are two headwinds here. Number one is the way that we finance healthcare in the United States and the way that we uh, commercialize drug discovery through the FDA process makes this, you know, much more difficult and costly than it ought to be. You know, as, as Dr. Liu said, you know, there are discoveries just there for the waiting, but it, they've got to go through this, you know, remarkably difficult clinical trial program. The second thing is, is that as this mainstreams, as is the case with so many innovations, it will benefit the wealthy first, and then it will be the upper middle class, and then it will be absorbed into uh, what will be accepted by um, healthcare insurance programs, and then it will be pulled into you know the broader ma- mainstream globally. And so I think that the kind of work that Dr. Liu was describing will add years of life expectancy on a per capita basis, but it will do so over a period of 10 to 12 years, initially benefiting the wealthy and then mainstreaming over time as a, as a function of finances. Uh, Dr. Liu, before I let you go, then, as we look into the, the future there, give us one fix. I mean, what's one thing that makes this system better that allows you to get some of your discoveries to market to be used by more people more quickly? Well, I think the regulators have uh, heard the the need to move uh, more quickly, and I think that they're trying very hard to streamline the process. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very sanguine about that. Um, I, I do think that the attention of the both government thinkers and, and deep thinkers like uh, Alec Ross will drive uh, solutions. I, I, in one of the, the paradoxes that we have right now is our challenge is not the technologies to deliver the goods. It's, it's our ability to figure out how to manage these technologies and, uh, and figure out how to finance uh, the distribution of, of the wealth of knowledge that we have. Dr. Edison Lewis, President and CEO of the Jackson Laboratory. Thank you so much, Doctor. Good to speak with you. Thank you, and thank you, Alec. Uh, before we run out of time, Alec, we want to prepare for the future a little bit. One thing we talk about an awful lot is whether or not the American education system is preparing students to do the work necessary to live in these uh, future industries. How do you think the education system is doing? Uh, poorly. I think that as fast as the pace of change has come and is headed, the delivery of K-12 through public education it moves much more slowly. And right now, there's a little bit of a mismatch between the areas where there will be job growth 
and the outputs of our education system. So I think that, you know, in the last chapter of my book, it's called The Most Important Job You'll Ever Have. And the most important job you'll ever have, I think, is being a parent. And so, you know, my call here is for parents who have kids in school who aren't necessarily getting everything that they need in school to prepare for the future to take, you know, some responsibility at home and to give them tools to be able to fill in the gaps. Mm. But there's this enormous achievement gap uh, in Connecticut. It's as bad as it is any place in, in the country. And there are many students for whom their parents, maybe their teachers, can play an increasing role in getting them into uh, a job at some point that is going to benefit all of us. Um, there's an awful lot of people who clearly are being left behind. I mean, what what do we as a society do for those folks who maybe can't rely on some of the, the same backstops that, that the rest of us grew up with? This is where we need good old-fashioned leadership, and we need good old-fashioned leadership to try to drive change through our public school systems that serve these very vulnerable populations. I grew up in one of these myself. I taught in one in West Baltimore through Teach for, through Teach for America, so I've seen this up front and close. Families with very limited resources and who have very limited educations themselves uh, are only going to be so resilient in the face of all of this technological and social change. And so we've got to depoliticize a lot of the delivery of public education in this country, identify where the real skills development that match that map to uh, to job creation will be and pivot our education there, as is being done in many other places around the world, including Dr. Liu's native Singapore and through much of Northern Europe. The book is called The Industries of the Future, and the author is Alec Ross. He joined us today with some of his ideas about the future. Continue this conversation at Where We Live on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us, where we live at WNPR.org. Alec, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Heather Brandon is the digital editor. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Thanks to all of our great interns. And I want to thank you for supporting WNPR in the past. If you haven't yet supported it this year, I'm going to turn you over to some friends who are going to tell you how you can become a member of WNPR and support programs just like Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. 